Good morning. Today's scripture is Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Good morning, Hope Church. So good to be here. I always love coming out and hanging out at Roosevelt Island. I've been out here two or three times at this point. Uh, But it's, yeah, it's always just a gift to come to worship with you and to just see the beautiful things that God is doing here in this community. Uh, And it's a privilege to be able to come and preach for you all today. Uh, Amanda asked me to and continue this series in Ephesians uh, to the church in New York. And so, as you heard from our scripture reading, we're going to be in the second half of Ephesians 2 this morning. And uh, the title of the sermon for you this morning, what I'd like to talk to you from, is the topic, When Walls Come Down. When Walls Come Down. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our sermon together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who delights to be present with your people. You are not a God who sits far off from us, but even as we heard in the text, you have chosen to make your presence dwell with your people. We are your temple. We are your household. So, Lord, we just want to acknowledge that this morning. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we dig into this text and as we open your word, God, that You, by your Holy Spirit, would illuminate our hearts and our minds, God. Allow us to be able to hear the things that you would have us to hear this morning. If there's anything that is distracting us or drawing us away, Lord, I pray that you would just cause us to be attentive and just meet us where we're at. And Lord, I ask that you would allow me not to be a distraction to what you want to do in this place but you would hide me behind your cross so that Jesus might be all in all. And so to that end, Lord, I ask that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer in whom we trust. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. So years ago, I read a book that has been deeply influential in 
in shaping how I understand not only my call into ministry, but more broadly speaking, my identity and my vocation as a follower of Jesus. It's a book written by a Ugandan-born but ethnically Rwandan Catholic priest by the name of Emmanuel Katangale. And the book is called Mirror to the Church. In this book, Katangale takes a close look at the genocide that broke out in Rwanda in April of 1994 during Holy Week. And if you're not familiar with what happened, in short, an estimated 500,000 to 1 million members of the Tutsi peoples were brutally murdered with rifles and machetes by members of the Hutu peoples. It was a, a mass genocide organized by the Hutu political elite. Now, the Hutus and Tutsis didn't live at a distance from one another. Many of them were neighbors, co-workers. Their kids went to the same schools. They spoke the same language. They knew one another. But what was most shocking for Katangale as he did his research for this book was that not only were Hutus and Tutsis neighbors and co-workers, but they also called each other brother and sister in Christ. They went to the same churches, they sat in the same pews, they sang the same songs, and they worshipped the same Jesus. Statistically speaking, Rwanda is what would have been considered a Christian nation. Nearly 90% of Rwandans checked off the Christian box under religious affiliation. And in light of this reality, Katangale says something about this situation in his book that, that struck me ever since I read it. And he said that the main issue at root in the church in Rwanda was that the blood of tribalism ran deeper than the waters of baptism. Let me say that again so that it lands with you. The blood of tribalism in the church ran deeper than the waters of baptism. In other words, it was a crisis of identity, of who we understand ourselves to be. And it was a crisis of allegiance, of how we determine where our loyalties lie. But his whole premise in this book was to say to the church in the West, to say to us, we need to look at what happened in Rwanda and hold it up as a mirror to our own selves. Because the Christianity that took root in Rwanda is only a product of what the West brought to it. It's the fruit of the seed that Western Christianity planted. Look at what he says. He says, we are, each of us, functions of how we imagine ourselves and of how others imagine us. Rwandans became people who were willing to kill one another because of a story they were first told by Europeans and later learned to tell themselves. It is a story rooted in the imagination of Europe told by European colonialists, retold and deepened over centuries by the church's missionaries, and accepted by converts to the Christian faith. While the story that made Rwanda might be unique in its particularities, 
Its pattern is consistent with the way Christianity functions by and large in the West. Rather than questioning, resisting, and interrupting the formation of identity through racial, economic, and national categories, Christianity so often affirms, intensifies, and radiates these identities. When this happens, Christianity becomes little more than a thin veneer over what we imagine our natural identity to be. There's a reason why what Dr. King said in 1963 still remains true. That at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, it's the segregated hour in America. There's a reason why the elephant of the Republican Party and the donkey of the Democratic Party seem to hold our allegiances more deeply than does the slain lamb of Golgotha's hill. How we understand our identities is, in fact, the effect of a deep formation that happens through the stories embedded within our social and political institutions. And so the question I want to ask this morning is how do we not continue to buy into and reinforce the narratives of our culture around race, economics, gender, politics, and class that have only borne the fruits of oppression and violence and have only served to deepen the divides between us? We need to understand the narratives that have formed us. We need to become aware of the cultural stories that have discipled us. And if we as the church are going to be a different kind of people who demonstrate that there is a different and a better way to be human, you and I must be formed and reformed by a far, far better story than the ones our culture tells us over and over again. This challenge that we face is not a new one. It's the same challenge that the Apostle Paul and the community of the early church faced in the first century in the Middle East, living under the Roman Empire. See, in Acts chapter 2, something radical happened that kick-started the movement of the early church as we understand it. On what's become known as Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God descended on a group of Jesus followers in Jerusalem and empowered them to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. On that day, scripture tells us that over 3,000 people trusted Jesus and became part of this new community. And while it's true that those 3,000 people trusted Jesus and became part of this new community and that they were from a variety of different cultures, They were all part of what was known as the Jewish diaspora, meaning that whether by blood or through conversion to the faith, they were all considered Jewish. They all carried with them the way of life, the practices and the customs of Judaism. But all of that changed when the Holy Spirit of God got a hold of a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus called him, a Jewish man, to take the gospel of the kingdom of God to the Gentile world. Now, that's good news to us because we are the beneficiaries of that story. But in Paul's time, it was highly controversial. Because, see, there was a dominant narrative 
a social, a political, and a religious story that was told and retold for centuries and centuries about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. According to the Jewish worldview, Jews and Gentiles were not supposed to mix. Gentiles were understood to be unclean. You don't associate with them. You don't eat with them. They were the godless pagans. And even if you were a Gentile convert to the Jewish faith, there was still a that existed between you and the non-converts, those who were Jewish by blood. So much so that in the temple, there was a wall that was built to divide the outer court of the Gentiles from the inner court where the Jews could go. And on the pillars of this wall, warnings were inscribed to let the Gentiles know that if you go past this point, it is a capital offense. Archaeologists have found a piece of this wall. And this is what the inscription reads. It says, no man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death which follows. Well, let me just say this. Jewish suspicion of the Gentiles was actually quite understandable. Their history was filled with the surrounding Gentile nations oppressing them, doing violence to them, ripping them from their land, enslaving them, and refusing to let them practice their way of life. And during the time of the first century, when Paul was writing, this wasn't just their history, it was their current reality as they were currently living under Roman occupation. See, this was one of the most powerful stories that ended up forming the identities and allegiances of the Jewish people. And Gentiles responded to this by considering Jews inhospitable and hateful toward anyone who wasn't Jewish. So the Gentiles would indulge in anti-Jewish prejudice. So you can see the cycle. Suspicion gives birth to suspicion, and hatred gives birth to hatred, and violence gives birth to violence, and so the story goes. And it's not as if when the church was birthed, these stories just went away. No, these stories were simply brought inside of this newly forming community. The walls that were built out there became the same walls that were erected in here. The same old animosities, the same old hatred, the same old oppressive tactics and power plays, the same old injustices just put on some Christian clothes. They put on their Sunday best. Because the story that had formed the people for centuries had not been confronted, challenged, and rendered powerless. Church, there are stories that have formed us deeply. Stories of racialization, stories told to us by our partisan political system, the story of the capitalist mind, 
the story of individualism, the story of exceptionalism, the story of militarism. And all of these stories shape how we relate to our neighbors. And in the American church, because we have not dealt honestly with these stories, and because these stories continue to fill our ears, whether consciously or unconsciously, they still hold formational power over us. And consequently, we are unable to truly hear the better story that the gospel tells. The book of Ephesians is all about telling a better story. And it begins to crystallize here in the second half of Ephesians 2, which you heard in the scripture reading. And so Paul's like, I know the stories we've heard and believed about Jews and Gentiles. Not only speaking to this division, but to all the divisions that exist. He's like, I know the stories that we've heard and believed about rich and poor, slave and free, men and women. But in the kingdom of God, there is a better story to be heard and a deeper reality to be lived. And so he says, starting in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. It might reconcile both groups to God and one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Can I tell you something true this morning, church? Through his death and resurrection, Christ has inaugurated God's new creation and has given birth to what Paul calls a new humanity. This new humanity is not marked by the narratives of the old ways of thinking that cause us to build up the dividing but there is a totally different way of seeing and understanding the other. Humanity, there is no them, there is only us. As I've heard it said once before, God's new creation is the creation of a new we. And let me be clear about something. When Paul talks about being in Christ, not saying that now that I am Christian, I get to view everyone else as an outsider. I'm in, they're out. I'm saved, they're not. I'm righteous, they're sinner. That's not what he's saying. Because that way of thinking is just taking the same old narratives and putting Christian clothes on them. It's a way for us to divide and to separate and to be in and out and right and wrong. It's the same old way of thinking. It's what the Christian mystics would call the dualistic mind. So Paul is painting for us a radically different picture of what's going on here. He says that part of being in Christ means that I now view humanity with an entirely different set of eyes. 
So Paul says it like this in Corinthians 5.16 in this great passage where he's talking about new creation. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly or a point of view. Meaning that we no longer allow the narratives that the world tells us about another person or another group of people to determine how we see and understand them. And so here's how Paul would say it as a Jewish man in the first century. The world has told me to view the Gentiles as the unclean, godless ones. But from the standpoint of being in Christ, I now view the Gentiles as kin. Beings created in the image of God, worthy of dignity, love, respect, and honor. And I will lay my life down for them, just like Jesus laid down his life for me. Colossians 3.11 puts it provocatively like this. In the new creation, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, but listen to this, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and is in all. Listen, that does not mean that those identities don't matter. Being in Christ doesn't negate your womanness. Being in Christ doesn't negate my blackness. Listen, God gave me my blackness, and I'm proud of it. Proud of it. But what it means is that regardless of the narratives that the world tells us, the identities we hold in our bodies do elevate us over anyone else they also don't put us underneath of anybody else either because Christ is all and is in all you know I pray this to myself every time I leave my apartment and walk out into the city say Christ is all and is in all Lord allow me to see everyone with that set of eyes. Because walking through the streets of this city is real easy to slip back into some ways of thinking. When people are all up in your space, right? We need to constantly be reminded of this better story. Constantly be telling ourselves of this better story. It's the reason why we do things in church, why we have a part of our liturgy, stuff like baptism. Stuff like the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table. Those things are, part of what those things do is they're meant to remind us of a community that we have been baptized, brought into a oneness in Jesus. Every time we take the bread and the cup, it's meant to remind us that we have been brought into one body. Listen, church, you are God's new humanity. That's your identity. Have you thought about that? That's who you are. That's who we are. And here's what that means for you. As an expression of God's new humanity here on Roosevelt Island, You are called to be a foretaste 
of what God will eventually do with the entire cosmos. You're called to be a foretaste of the reality that one day the, the, the peace, the shalom that God is going to bring to the whole entire cosmos, the whole entire world, This wholeness, this oneness that God is going to bring in Christ, where Paul talks about in Ephesians, this reconciling all things in Christ, this summing up all things in Jesus. You're called to be a foretaste of that day when all of the things that are out of order and out of joint and all the walls that are erected, those things are torn down and things that are broken apart are put back together again. And because of this, the place where you are called to live out your life as the new humanity is at the dividing walls of our world. As a community, you should be asking yourselves, where are the dividing walls that have been erected on this island? Where are the dividing walls that have been erected on this island? Once you discover that, go and set up shop there. Pitch your tent at that wall. That's where you're called to do your best work. That's where you are called to bear witness that there's a better way of being human. That's where you are called to say to the world that the kingdom of God is here. So these walls must come down. And this is going to require prayerful, Spirit-empowered wisdom and creativity. Creativity like what's being seen right now at our southern border. See, there's a church right now that is not a brick-and-mortar church, but they meet every Sunday at the southern border between San Diego and Tijuana where folks from the U.S. side come to the wall and they meet up with folks from the Tijuana side. In that congregation, there are family members that haven't seen each other for 10 years. People that they don't know if they'll ever see them again. Sometimes what happens is those folks who are sort of on their deathbed are rolled up to the wall so that they can say one last goodbye to the folks on the other side. And that congregation gathers there and they sing worship songs to Jesus. They remind each other of the fact that they are one in Christ. They do all of this under the watch of Border Patrol. Because every Sunday when they go to the wall, they don't know if they will be permitted to gather or not. It's up to the discretion of whoever's on the post that day. And part of their liturgy, part of what they do every Sunday, is they do something called give each other pinky kisses. Because this is the only part of the wall that this is able to happen, but at the wall, there's tiny little holes small enough for someone to put their pinky through. And folks on the U.S. side will stick their pinky through, and folks on the other side of the wall will stick their pinky, and they'll just touch. 
This is how they greet each other with a holy kiss. This is how they embrace. This is how they remind each other of who they are. But do you realize that this is also a powerful witness? It's a powerful witness in the face of an actual physical wall. That this wall, this story, this narrative has no power, that there is a greater story to be told. That there's a deep reality to be lived into. And that this wall will not tell us who we are. Or I could tell you the story. I could tell you the story of Father Emil Shafani. Father Shafani is a Palestinian. And he decided that he was going to gather 300 people, Jews and Palestinians, and lead them on pilgrimage to Auschwitz. And so he took them to Auschwitz in order to bring, bring the other side, bring, bring them into each other's pain, open up each other's stories for one another. To, to, to be, begin to dispel some of the narratives that were so present, that are so present at the, the literal wall that exists, that divide communities, that have divided that community for centuries. And there was a, a Jewish man by the name of Yossi Halevi Klein who was there. He wrote a phenomenal book called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. You should read it. But he said, and he marveled at this fact, he said, who would have thought a Christian was our spiritual father that day? Because he had an open heart to both Jews and Muslims on that day. He creatively thought of a way to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is Lord in a space where the divides are so deep. And he was able to lead them into a place where none of them had gone before. As Yossi Klein said, he said, what, what Father Shofani did was he opened up a space for God to show up. Listen, do you realize that that is who we are called to be? That those are the, that's the kind of people in this world. That's our vocation in this world. And so I am looking forward to hearing the stories that come out of this community about how Hope Covenant Church here on Roosevelt Island pitched their tent at the wall to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is Lord, that the kingdom of God is here, and that there is a better way to be human. And through your life, as you live out to this thing called the new humanity, it's through you that the kingdom comes and that God's will will be done here 
in New York City as it is in heaven.